for human flourishing. And since it's about flourishing, it's also about our transformation. All of our attempts on our own to flourish without God go wrong. In the Bible, God tells us about himself, about us, and about the world that he's made. And when God gives directions or commands in the Bible, he follows this pattern, indicative and imperative. You can see it there on the screen. The indicative is where God tells us about what he has done for us and about his character. For example, remember that the word gospel means good news, and it is the good news of what God has done for us. The imperative is a command given in the context of the indicative and resting on the indicative. So another example, God's command for you and I to forgive others rests on God forgiving us. Think of God's commands. Now, here's where indicative comes into play. If you think of God's commands without the indicative, without what God has done for us, who God is, very easy for God's commands to become an oppressive list, oppressive to-do list, just adding weight to your shoulders. I have more and more and more to do. But in the context, when you have God's indicative in the picture, who God is and what he's done for us, then God's commands become signals of his grace. They become pointers to true life. Now, the indicative may be clearly stated, or it may be implied. It may be given before or after the command. When you and I embrace God's indicatives, that is, when you and I remind ourselves of who God is and what God has done for us and how his character, and when we follow God's commands, we move toward true flourishing. Well, the Bible is also very clear about the corruption of sin that affects all of us and works against the flourishing. As we continue our study through the book of Colossians, we see that through Paul, God reminds the Christians at Colossae of some indicatives. And we looked at some of these last week. First, on the slide there, that Jesus is Lord over all. He's the ruler over all people and over all authorities. Jesus has secured redemption and restoration for his people. Redemption means that he has paid the debt that we owe to God. And he has freed us from slavery. And the restoration includes the idea of transformation. And then thirdly, we've seen that Christians are, quote-unquote, in Christ. We looked at being in Christ last week. Then last week, we also saw a series of commands that have to do with a whole new way of living. A way of living life God's way, living life righteously. And these commands have to do with gaining a godly perspective on life rather than just our own perspective. Fighting against our own flesh, that is, our own selfish, sinful nature. Putting off attitudes and actions that don't line up with God's character. And then putting on or intentionally building into our lives compassion, humility, forgiveness, and more. And then finally, we looked last week also at cooperating with God, embracing God's work, and depending on God's work in our lives. Well, today, Paul, Paul follows this up with more commands. These commands are for the members of the family. 
And again, remember that God's commands are a part of God's grace, and the result of following these commands is movement towards flourishing. So if you would, remain seated, and let's read together from the screen, Colossians 3, verses 18 to 25. Let's read this together. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this is pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. If any parents wish to dismiss any children to stepping stones, you can do that now. As we look at these verses, it is important to remember that Christianity provides a new power for living, a new purpose for living, and a new pattern for living. Now, if you know me, I'm not alliterative, so I didn't come up with that. But I like it. I found it this week in my studies, and so I'm sharing it with you. Well, the new power for living is the Spirit of God working in the life of a Christian. The new purpose for living is to please and obey God. But you know, if that's all I said, it would actually be incomplete. Because it isn't just, purpose isn't just to please and obey God, it's also to enjoy God. That's why in the, in the confession, it says the fir- in the first question, what are we to do? Enjoy God. And we're to obey Him, follow Him. Then thirdly, the pattern for living is found in the Bible, and in particular, the pattern is found in Jesus, who delighted in depending on God the Father and obeying God. Now, there are two somewhat controversial topics in our verses today, and we encounter the first one in verse 18. Many people today would bristle at verse 18 and the command to submit. I should also mention that this verse has been misused by many people. Well, in verse 18, it reads, Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. So to begin with, Let's see God's perspective on authority and submission. Well, here's where we start. All people are to submit to God because he is our creator and our king. All people are commanded by God to submit to the human authorities that God places over them. Don't miss that. God is the one who places human authorities, the ones we like and the ones we don't like, the ones that are actually good for us and the ones that are not. He, for his own purposes, puts those authorities over us. And he commands us to submit to them. And these authorities include parents, teachers, governments, and more. One example of this command is in the Ten Commandments when God says to the children, honor your father and mother. Well, here's another truth for all of us. All of us, for all of us, our sinful tendency is to rebel against any authority. Now, I should mention here that all rulers have limits to their authority. 
not all, not all human rulers have the same sphere of authority. So another example, elders in the church have spiritual authority but not civil authority. Here's another true statement. All human authorities, since they are put in place by God, answerable to God, should reflect the character of God. All human authorities should reflect the character of God. But if they do at all, they do so poorly, and many do not at all, as we look at our authorities and God's word. Any human authority that commands a Christian to disobey God must itself be disobeyed because God is to be obeyed above all other authorities. So to kind of sum this up, submission applies to every one of us. Next, God is the one who created men and women and created them with equal value but gave them different roles. God is the one who created marriage which means that marriage is not just a human thing that somebody came up with. God created marriage, and God created the husband-wife relationship. And God is the one who assigned the husband to lead the family. So God calls the wife to voluntarily submit to her husband's leadership. This does not in any way imply any inferiority on the part of the wife, just as God's command for all of us to submit to the governing authorities doesn't mean that we're in any way inferior to the governing authorities. It's a different role. But having said that, in many cultures, the wife was or is treated as inferior and sometimes treated as property. The early Christian church challenged that view and elevated the status of women. But notice this too. The wife who voluntarily submits to her husband's leadership is ultimately trusting God to be working in both of their lives, her life and his. And so this is not in any way to be a mindless submission. In the Bible, the wife is intended to complete her husband and to give counsel to her husband. And so the wise husband listens to his wife and values his thoughts. You actually see a picture of some of this in Proverbs 31 with that description. The wife in that picture is very busy, very industrious. She's a wonderful picture of the one-minute manager, Wayne, okay, as she's following what God directs. And she's working alongside of her husband in all of these things that is being done here. Well, you see the same command that we have here in Colossians in Ephesians 5.22 that says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Well, in verse 19, the focus then goes to the husbands. And here, husbands are told, Love your wives and do not be harsh with them. So if one, sin, if one sinful tendency for all of us is to rebel against authority, another sinful, selfish tendency we all have is to misuse any authority that we're given. We'll see it here, and we'll see it again in just a bit. Well, the clear intent of this command to husbands is for husbands to not abuse the authority and responsibility they have been given by God. Husbands are, are commanded to love their wives. Now, the New Testament was written in Greek, in what was called Koine Greek, 
And one of the advantages of it being written in Koine Greek is that Greek language was pretty specific. The Greek language had four different words for love. Well, Christian church took another word, a fifth word, agape, and added it and said agape describes the kind of love that God has for us. And that's the word that's used here. This kind of love serves and sacrifices and gives. And so the husbands are to lead their families, and in the leading of families they are to serve and sacrifice and give. A good word from the King James Bible, which is the one I grew up reading, a good word in there for the word love is cherish. To cherish is to value and to prize and to care for. And so husbands are commanded to value and prize and care for their wives. Paul continues speaking to the husbands. Do not be harsh with them. What? In all of this, as my dad used to say, God quit preaching, he went to meddling. Okay, He's going into the weeds here on every relationship that he addresses. And when God says to the husbands, do not be harsh with your wives, here's the pointer to the misuse of God-given authority. You see, for every one of us, when we are full of ourselves, when we think more highly of ourselves than we ought, we tend to be harsh with others when they don't agree with us. And in this harshness, we will try to push the other person to agree, to submit, to, to line up with us. You didn't realize it. We see a picture of this today in the cancel culture. Oh, you, you don't agree with me? Fine. I just erase you from my life. Gone. Well, God tells us that he is, he is going to hold all of us accountable for all of our thoughts and words and actions. Then in verse 20, we turn to the children. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. In God's design, we begin to learn to submit when we're children. And children are told to obey their parents. Now, in doing this, children begin to learn to submit to other authorities. But here's the thing. We're all born self-focused, and selfish, and rebellious. So it turns out that our nature is contrary to everything that God says, pretty much. Now, here's another point about obedience. It's important to recognize that God-honoring obedience is more than children keeping the letter of their parents' command. It also includes embracing the spirit and the intent of the command. Do you realize that God has taken the bar we set for obedience and raised it way high? Okay? So obedience, let's say, for example, the child is told, make your bed. And they make their bed. But they're complaining and grumbling. Why do I have to make my... Why I have to do this every morning? Okay, that's not true obedience. But you know what? Sometimes parents think, you know what? Fine. That's good enough. And God says, oh, no, it's not. We'll see how in just a second. But here's the other thing that's true. It's not just true for children. The same is true for all of us with God's commands. Because when you look in the light of the letter in the Spirit, what we see is our obedience is often less complete than we might think it is. 
our obedience is often less complete than we might think it is. And that ought to encourage us to thank God for his great patience and forgiveness. It's a really good thing that God does not deal with us the way that our parents dealt with us or we deal with our children. It's a really good thing. Now, here's another thing about children. Sometimes children will tell you their rebellious attitude. For example, if they're told to sit down, they'll sit, but then they'll say, I may be sitting down on the inside, but I'm standing up on, you know, outside, but I'm standing up on the inside. Okay? Just straight out. There it is. I want you to know exactly what I'm thinking. Well, part of raising children is to help them to see their own rebellious spirit and to encourage them to turn to God. Too often as parents, when you hear that from your child, you'll say, what do I have to do to get an obedient child? Is it so hard? Have I done so wrong that I can't get one? And you're saying that right in front of the child. What we should be saying when the child says, I may be sitting down on the outside, but I'm standing up on the inside. Parents ought to be talking to their children and saying, you know what? I struggle too with obeying God. I know it's hard. And you know what? On my own, I can't do it either. We both need God. That changes relationship when you do something like that. Well, God continues through Paul in verse 21, now talking to fathers. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. And though it's addressed to fathers, it applies to both fathers and mothers. And the idea here, again, is to not abuse the authority and the responsibility that you've been given. So I'm going to keep meddling some more. How do parents provoke their children? And children, you ought to be looking to this, okay? Because you'll recognize it. Now, don't raise your hand and start telling us, okay? But you're going to recognize it. How do parents provoke their children? By being harsh and yelling and speaking in anger. By being inconsistent. Parents set a rule. Here's the house rule. You may not do this. And then what happens? Sometimes it gets enforced, and sometimes it doesn't. Parents provoke their children by ignoring them. Now, children, just to be, just to be understood, you can, cannot have your parents' attention for 100% of the time. Okay? It doesn't work that way. But we can, as parents, ignore them. Then the next two kind of go together. Being unforgiving and taking their rebellion personally. Okay? I think the, the taking it personally often feeds the being unforgiving. Because parents at times will basically have the attitude, how dare you disobey me? How dare you? Well, just remember this. Parents, you're not your child's ultimate authority. Okay? You're both under God's authority. And, and sometimes parents need a little talking to. And just to be reminded, you know what? Your child, if they were the child of another parent, would be just as rebellious to them as they are to you. 
Okay? But what happens too often is that we begin to think, I am the authority. Okay? And again, it's so good that God doesn't treat us the way we treat think of treating our children like that. And then the last one, being hypocritical. There are not two standards. One standard for parents and another one for children. We're all under God with one rule, one set of standards that we're to live by. Now, I hope you're seeing, let me put it as a question, are you seeing that God's standards are much higher than you and I can achieve on our own? They're much higher. And that, again, should move us not to say, God, why are you frustrating us so much? But, because again, if there were no indicatives, if we had no truth about God's character and what he's doing and how he loves us, then we would be right in saying, God, why are you frustrating me so much? But in light of his character, his love, his sacrifice, his goodness, the, the, the thing is, God, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your gifts. Thank you that you don't compromise, that you don't, you know, you don't countenance any kind of evil and rebelliousness. You deal with it, and you rescue us from it. Verse 22 gives us the second controversial topic. This reads, Slaves, <clears throat> obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Now, we're not going to discuss the topic of slavery to any extent today, but I'd like to share just a few thoughts. First, slavery is a form of breaking Jesus' second command or his second summary of the commandments. And we actually read that summary today in our catechism, Love Your Neighbor as Yourself. Slavery breaks that. Though the Bible does not promote slavery, it allows it. And you might think that's strange, because for most of us, we want it totally gone. But think about this. Think about all the other sins that God allows for now. He commands, don't lie, cheat, or steal. There's a whole bunch of lying, cheating, and stealing going on. And he allows it for now. And much of these other sins you and I take for granted. They don't bother us like slavery does. But what God does in the Bible is he puts limits on slavery and he speaks to both masters and slaves. And when you look at history, it was the influence of Christianity that led to the large-scale abolition of slavery, though if you're not aware of it, it's not gone today. It's still around in different places, in different forms. It's still around. Well, here's how I believe, here's how I believe this verse applies to families. It's my understanding that in the New Testament times, slaves were often part of households and worked either in the household or in the family business. In fact, we have a letter to a slave owner in the New Testament, Philemon. Paul writes him. And in part, he's writing about a runaway slave, one of Philemon's slaves, Onesimus, who in, in God's providence ran away from Philemon and ran into Paul and became a Christian. Well, here's the modern parallel to this concept that I'd like to make, and I think it's, we can make it on principle. And that is employers and employees. I'm not saying in any way that employment is like slavery, but the same principle for masters and slaves in that, in that verse, verse 22, 
is going to apply to employees and employers. Now, I was in the military for a number of years. I also worked for several years as a contractor before becoming a pastor. And I remember seeing people at work who worked very hard at not working. Okay, I see a couple of people shaking their heads. You, you know people like this. Um, some of them fit this verse, the, the eye service. When the boss was around, they worked hard. They were the hardest workers, so busy. But when the boss wasn't around, they were noticeably less diligent in what they did and were very hard working at trying to get others to do their work for them. So instead, what we're told here is to work with sincerity of heart, which means, you know, which includes working with diligence. And notice that Paul doesn't say, you ought to work hard for your master because you should fear your master. No, he says you should work hard because you fear God. Now, fearing God includes shaking in your boots because he is God, he is powerful, he is great and awesome, but it also includes I want to please him because he's my creator and he's the one who loves me. And I want to do good to see him. So to kind of sum it up, Christians should be the most diligent, faithful, hardworking workers wherever they are. And then in verses 23 to 25, Paul provides a summary. He says, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. So this statement makes it clear. This applies to all of us in every aspect of our lives. Home, work, school, neighbors, whatever it is. There is no part of life left out of this command. He says, in all you do, work as if you were working directly for God. And notice the encouragement and the warning. The encouragement is that God offers the Christian a reward which we do not deserve, but he gives it anyway. And the warning is that the wrongdoer will get the consequences and God shows no partiality. So what we've seen today in these verses that we've looked at is that they're all about relationships. Husbands and wives, parents and children, employees and employers. And remember where we started. Each of these commands are given in the context of God's provision. And when you look at the Bible, the big picture of God's provision is our rescue by Jesus and the work of God's Spirit in our lives. And then he explains and works that out further as we look at the New Testament. But here's the other part of it. He gives that, offers that, and we can take advantage if we turn to God and depend on Him. And that's what he calls us to do. That's why he doesn't water down the standard. That's why he raises the bar and says it's a whole lot higher than you think. Just like we saw a little bit in our, in our catechism. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, you've all heard it said, do not murder. And most of the people sitting there were thinking, well, I never have. So I'm good with God on that one, right? And he says, oh, well, let's look at, look at what it really means. Here's this, not just the letter, but the spirit of it. Do you hate anyone? Do you despise anyone? Do you call anybody a fool? If you have, you're guilty. 
when we realize that, when we agree with that, we're in the place now as, as in another one of Jesus' parables. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And he is so wonderful and gracious. And so what I hope you're seeing is that, the, that following these commands that God gives us moves to increasing flourishing and greater transformation, which God says that's what he's about, to transform us, to change us and make us more like Jesus. Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, we thank you for giving us your word and giving us these commands. Thank you also for the indicatives, all the places you show and speak of, your love and your grace and your goodness, your faithfulness. Lord, we thank you that our hope isn't in anything we can do, anything about us. It is Our hope is in you. And you are so good, and you don't treat us as we deserve. And you are so merciful and good and patient as you work in our lives, as you take us from brokenness and restore us. We thank you and praise you. and pray this in Christ's name. Amen.
We now come to our time of tithes and no, not tithes and offerings. That was before when I did that. We now come time to our time frame for prayer requests. Um, we have a couple prayer requests. We have our first one is from Janet to pray for our federal, state, and local officials to make wise decisions that honor God and to pray that the elections next month will be conducted with integrity. Also, we have from Emily to pray for our friend and former Harvester member Jean Willis as she is fighting cancer. She is now in treatment. Please pray for peace and healing. Um, lastly, we have one from Gianna to pray for her driver's teacher um, because she, or sorry. Because he has COVID, um, pray for a speedy recovery for him and that no one else in his family gets sick. Please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, holy and almighty God, we thank you for who you are and what you have done. Father, we know you are a God who hears us and who answers prayer. Father, we pray that you would be with Gianna's um, driver's ed teacher um, as he has COVID and that you would have a speedy recovery and that no one else in his family would get sick. Father, we also pray for Jean Willis um, as she is fighting this cancer, that you would be with her um, and that um, you would you would heal her, um, that you would give her peace. And Father, we also pray um, for all of our federal, state, and local officials to make wise decisions that honor and glorify you. Father, we pray that all of these things, um, that they would look towards you in wisdom um, as we move forward into election season. Father, we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, we have a couple of announcements. First, um, first announcement is that we have Sunday school after the worship service at 1130 um, in here for adults um, and for children in the education wing. Um, we also have Life Quest tonight at 530 here in the sanctuary, and our, our floor... Flourishing, I want, I want. I was trying to get the right word for that. Flourishing class here um, in room one at at 5:30 as well. Um, we also have our church work day coming up. It had to be postponed because of weather from Saturday to this coming Saturday. So it is this Saturday at 9 a.m. If you have any more questions, please talk to Mark Washacek. Um, we also, just as a reminder, we are having our trunk or treat at the end of this month on October Saturday, October 29th. Um, at 3 to 5 p.m. at the Saratoga um, uh, Community Pool. If you'd like more information on that, I encourage you to talk uh, to look at your, your news bites or talk to Raquel Coleman. Also, if you're not able to help out by having a trunk or by helping out in other, other ways, um, I encourage you to donate candy so that, they, so that other people can be able to um, give out candy. Our real desire in all of these things is to reach out to the community that is around us to show that we are we are here to share the gospel with them in both word and in deed. Um, lastly, Paul, you have a announcement that you would like to make. I just want to bring to your attention two uh, items in the news bits here. The child protection training, that's this time of the year. Every two years we've got to do child protection training. If you're an elder, a deacon, on staff or you work with children, you need to have this child protection training. I've got a list of 10 people that, have, that are um, excused, I guess, because they've already had the training last year. So I'll read those lists. If your name's on this list, that means you're, you don't have to have it this time. So it's Corrine Hayes, Rob and Ellen and Molly Downey, Bruce and Nancy Stanley, Eddie Eisler, Gianna Peroni, Jesse Coleman and Wayne Creeble. You all had the training last year, so you don't need to have it this year. But if you want to come again, you're more than welcome. So, 
Um, the other thing I want to bring to your attention is Mark preached a sermon several uh, months ago on uh, pro-life. We saw the uh, Dobbs decision, which overturned Roe versus Wade, and there was a lot of discussion what we should do. So the session has discussed that, and part of this is to have a presentation and discussion next Sunday night after the uh, uh, child protection training at 7.30 for those that are interested. We're going to discuss, we're going to have a short presentation, and then we're going to have to discuss actions that we can do as a local body of Christ just beyond political, it's just not, we're not just talking about politics, but we're talking uh, practical applications that we can do. So I please encourage you to come, those that are interested. If you've got any more questions before that, uh, give me a holler and we'll talk about it. So thank you. Thank you. Please stand for the benediction. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift his countenance towards you and give you peace through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Go in peace.